Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by David Fairbrother. David is the Managing Director of NSR Management, a business based in Aylesbury, Buckinghamshire, which specialises in the field of measured term contracts in the construction industry. David, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure having you. It's my pleasure. A real pleasure. Now, um, David, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and business leaders, governments having to feel their way through what is ultimately an unprecedented crisis. Um, We'll get onto that in a little bit more detail in a moment. But if we dive straight into the discussion first by looking at the word leader just in isolation for a second. What does yeah. that word actually mean to you, and how does it resonate? Oh, um, I suppose a leader. I mean, a leader is somebody who can basically direct people and and with clarity, basically. Because I think a lot of the problems with, uh, particularly with the just mentioned bounce, is, is the actual clarity and, and you know clarity of instruction, etc., as to how to how to proceed with certain things. I mean, obviously, it all comes up. Everyone comes up with challenges. And I suppose to tell you how you actually confront those challenges and how you guide people through them. Um, so I suppose a good leader is somebody who can who can actually guide the rest of the people through those challenges and to get out the other side, basically. And one of the biggest challenges facing business at the moment is, of course, the uh, the COVID-19 challenge and the fact that it's been a very difficult time for business and a very tragic time. The government yeah. stepped in with numerous um, support measures, as we uh, well know. Um, but for yourselves at NSR, David, um, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks and months yourselves? Because I can imagine it's posed a huge challenge, particularly given your involvement in the construction sector. Posed a few challenges. I mean, we're we're quite fortunate because a lot of the, the, the field we work in, which is obviously measured term contracts, which is what we specialise in, tends to be between three and five year contracts. Um, and we are constantly updating the product that we provide to the clients. And as, as we have a long term contract with them, small blips in the middle of them like this tends to not create that much of a, a disruption to our work. Uh, we're also fortunate that a lot of our work can be done remotely. So, you know, although we've had to close the office, all of our staff have managed to work remotely from home. So we've not had to call on any of the furlough scheme. And um, we just give our last staff laptops and they've all just started working from home. Um, we've had a few issues. With, I mean, some of the, some clients, for example, have had to, or some of our, cons- our contract clients have uh, had to go on furlough. So we've, we've tried to help them out of as much as they can by suspending licenses, etc., um, so that they're obviously not paying for for, um, for the product while we're not using it. So it's um, and that's been gratefully received, shall we say. So, but uh, the industry on the whole is, I think, is is struggling slightly contractor-wise. I think um, there's a lot of, of contractors have had to fill a lot of staff, and I suppose it's it's managing to get those contracts back up and running again. It's, it's going to going to take some time. Mm. So uh, we will hopefully, um, that's, you know, with the government help, that shouldn't be too much of a at all, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, certainly. And um, we're starting to see things, of course, open up again by way of restrictions um, for the lockdown being lifted. 
Um, during this uh, current period, David, um, how would you say that the members of staff at um, NSR management have taken to this period? The reason why I asked that question is because um, we've heard some incredible stories during this time of how the pandemic has brought people closer together and how people have gone above and beyond whether they've had to adapt to remote working and that does cut or whether they've had to continue working on site, I should say. And that throws up its own challenges, having to show sort of leadership from a distance and keep communication channels open. So do you think that's yeah. something that you've generally taken to quite well as a whole um, within the business? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really pleased with how we've, uh, how we've managed to, how the staff have managed to call the things. I mean, it's not easy. I mean, I, I, myself and a couple of other staff are, are quite used to working from home. I've worked from home enough since 2006, but some of the staff that are used to being based in the office, it's been a bit, a bit of a struggle for them, and mainly because they haven't got the, you know, the space to work really at home like they do in the office. But um, we're, I'm really pleased with how they've, how they've taken to it and, and the feedback we've got. And uh, I mean, we, we take, take, take advantage of technology. We have Zoom meetings every week, so it's uh, you know just to see how things are going. And um, and again, it's, it's it's something that we've always we always managed to keep in touch all the time. So it's uh, it's worked out quite well actually. It's a real testament to the adaptability and flexibility of business this period, isn't it? And for those that yeah, do yeah. manage to make it through the uh, the pandemic, there are going to be an awful amount of positives to take from this in the way of resilience, crisis management experience for those at the helm, mm. but also the fact that employees will have had the experience of going through something like this, having to go out of their comfort zones just to keep things ticking over. And that's going mm. to sort of breed character within them as well. And it's going to be a real learning curve for people. Yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be a learning curve for the, the companies as a whole. I think it's um, it's been interesting to see what happens because I mean, that, our company in particular is, is uh, the where it is based in Aylesbury. The staff that work in the office tend to be local anyway, but I can see there's large companies that are based in London that that people have to commute for hours every day. It may well force a rethink in future where maybe they do get like, get staff to work from home more. Um, so you know we'll have to wait and see, but um, you know it's, it's it's certainly something that's worth thinking about in the future. It's certainly. Um possibly going to bring change to our working practices uh, for sure David I can certainly see where you're coming from there um, and if we just look at maybe some of the leadership that's gone into uh, this pandemic from the uh, government view just for a moment there's been an awful amount of debate hasn't there about especially how quick the lockdown was implemented um, proactivity versus reactivity in the sense that yeah. you look at Italy the lockdown began there on the 9th yeah. of March as yeah. early as that we didn't follow suit until the 23rd of March so we had of course mm. procedures in place but in many ways it was a bit more of a laissez-faire approach of just wait and see what happens see how things develop and then bring in more stringent measures later on um tell me um if we take that sort of away from politics and away from covid for a moment in the general day-to-day running of the business david would you say that you're more of the proactive leader who likes to dive in on issues as and when they arise and get on top of them or do you tend more to let things play out a bit see how it develops and then take action from that point I suppose a lot of this depends on the actual circumstances. Mm. Um, I think I'm probably more proactive in, in myself. I mean, personally, with the way that things go, it, it, it does annoy me slightly when people keep saying, oh, with, with hindsight, etc." Uh Well, in, in my opinion, we did have hindsight. Um, we saw what was happening in Italy, and we just reacted too late. And um, there's, there's some of the scientists are even beginning to admit that now. But uh, I don't think you need to be a scientist to see from the start that uh, things would 
you know, we were even, I mean, personally speaking, myself and, uh, and the wife, we locked down a week before, as soon as we saw what was happening in Italy, we locked down ourselves, you know, weeks before the actual government imposed lockdown. And I think a lot of people did that. Um, so I think they were late. So I suppose it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm more of a proactive sort of person, if you like, rather than reactive. But like I say, it, it all depends on the actual circumstances. I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view, David, absolutely. And um, just sticking on the uh, the government term issue uh, for a second, um, there's been a lot of debate, of course, about how clear the guidelines have been throughout the pandemic and also how clear the new COVID secure guidelines will be going forward. Of course, given your ties to the uh, the construction industry, are you confident that you and the wider sector, considering that it has been working throughout the um, crisis thus far, knows what is expected of it going forward? Um. I think so. Yes, I mean it's like I said, it's the the people that are running companies in in the construction the sector, the, the people people aren't stupid. They, they they know the sensible things to do. Um, whether they always do them is another, another thing. But the, you know that's generally more of a if you like a commercial decision, I think, rather than uh, rather than anything else. But um, I think that you know it's it's quite clear what um, the measures that needed to be take, taken. And um, and I think the help that the government are giving regarding the furlough scheme, I think it's made it um, possible that you can um, take decisions that you wouldn't normally, you know, would do financially. It's uh, financial help in there, so I think it's there's been no excuse not to take um, not to take things cautiously. And if we think about what the uh, the longer term future holds now, David, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, what do you envision over the next twelve months for yourself and for NSR management, and what do you hope to achieve as we hopefully move through the COVID nineteen pandemic, emerge from the other side, and really begin to adjust to the new normal and look to the long term? Yeah, I think I think I said earlier. I mean, we're we're quite fortunate in the market we're working because it's uh, it tends to be like I said, tends to be maintenance and it's, it's major term contracts and it's ongoing, etc. So we, uh, I suppose, it, it, we are hoping um, that I mean we're quite confident that it's it's not going to affect us too badly over the next twelve months. I think it's uh, I think going forward it might there might be slight downturn, but um, I don't think it'll be too too serious for us. Um, the rest of the industry, again, it's it's one of those industries that the government tend to use for you know boost for economic growth, etc. and um, so I think it's generally the first one that gets gets any emphasis that the government are putting in. Um, so it's uh, I think, like I say, it's, it's a bit early to say yet, but I'm, I'm fairly confident that um, that the industry will will won't be in too bad a shape after the end of the next twelve months. Yeah, it's certainly um, early days, um, as you say, um, in speculating on what might happen with the industry. And of course, there are a great many variables, such as the possibility of a second spike in cases that we're so desperately trying to avoid. But you know, David, given how informative it's been discussing these issues um, today, I think it would be fantastic in the next few months to actually catch up and have you back on the programme sometime, just to see what has changed in that time period, what direction the industry is heading in, and also just understand how things at NSR management itself are getting on as well. It would be a real pleasure for myself um, as well, David, just as it's been having you on the air with us today. So again, I really do appreciate the time taken to uh, join us. And most importantly, in the meantime, do take care and do stay safe um, with everything still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet, for sure. Absolutely not. No, we, we are still, like I said, we're, we're still isolating. So um, 
you know, it's, uh, we, we, we know it's not over yet by a long chalk. So it's, uh, you know, we, we, like I said, we, we're still being cautious. Mm. And to those tuning in and listening to this, do stay home where you can. Do try and control the virus and stay safe and look after yourselves because it really does make a difference in saving the lives of others. I was yeah, speaking, I would, I would yeah. that as well. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. That was David Fairbrother speaking there. Managing Director of NSR Management in Aylesbury, Buckinghamshire. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket skipper Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Sir Andrew is currently the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, but during his days as a player, he became one of only three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, joining a very illustrious club, I think it's fair to say. And he also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history. Quite impressive. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew and that is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we're joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, m- my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Rescoff that you gave me that nickname? Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that 
this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, 
everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you're privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda – was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your Th job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but 
what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, 
especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. 
and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.